Device Nation. Greetings and Happy New Year's, Device Nation. You're home for the greatest show on earth, and we know that show is Medical Device Sales. I hope you're having a great day. Hope you had a great 2020. I know I did. This is Kevin Brown. Your voice of happy days are here again in times of Auld Lang Syne. Get that lampshade from the party off your head. It's a new year, and that means a new quota. You know, for many years, we had to make presentations to senior management this time of year as to just how we were going to make our quota. I remember one rep in particular whose presentation was essentially just him putting his head on an overhead projector. Remember those things? And yelling, water! I need water! Ever been there? Uh, We all have. And here's to hoping we all find a very large body of just that in 2021. Today's guest was water to my soul, and I found him in the most serendipitous of ways. I read an inspiring story of a surgeon Santa Claus in Los Angeles who has since passed, Dr. Jeffrey Epstein. And in my quest to find out more about this amazing man, I ended up on the phone with Dr. Jerry Bornstein, a retired orthopod in Sherman Oaks, California, who knew him. And the longer we talked, I just knew I had to introduce him to you the listening audience. It's always good, by the way, to spend time with those older than you and just ask open-ended questions. You will invariably learn something to help you in the here and now. And, And as a bonus, you've communicated to that person that their life, their experiences are important. So without further ado, let's kick off 2021. Welcoming to Device Nation, Dr. Jerry Bornstein. Thank you very much. Dr. Bornstein, I hope you're having a wonderful holiday season. I wanted to to connect with you and find out about your life. I know you have an amazing story and ask you about your path into medicine. And tell me, what was it like growing up in your household and, and how did that end up leading to a career in medicine? Well, if we go back that far, uh, I was a Depression baby. I was born in 1931 and grew up in the post-Depression era. My watched my father as I grew up. He raised, uh, took care of my mother and raised three kids uh, on a layperson's salary because he had lost his business in Denver, Colorado during the Depression uh, because my sister had been uh, born with a problem and had spent the first six months of her life in the hospital. And in those days, he didn't have insurance. I grew up and I watched him worry from day to day whether he was going to be working or not. And I think over the years, I was feeling that we were, as far as I'm concerned, uh, I wanted to be my own boss the rest of my life. I didn't want to uh, have to rely on somebody else. So... That was one segment of my desire to go into medicine where I thought you'd be your own boss, <laughs> which <laughs> has changed a little bit. Uh, Quite a bit. But uh, along with that, uh, I was always interested in animals. I was interested in, I probably should have been a vet as a matter of fact. I love animals and so on. But uh, I was always interested in animals and in people and in helping people and uh, always said, as far back as I can remember, I wanted to be a doctor, and that was it, and just continued to work my way through. My folks kind of tried to talk me out of it because 
In those days, there were no big scholarships or anything like that. My father was raising, uh, taking care of a family of five on uh, not much of an income, and that was it. So I just kept at it and got into medicine, and I was also much involved with athletics, played baseball and football in high school and some baseball in college. And uh, ultimate was that I was interested in sports, I was interested in medicine, and uh, as I got into my training, I was more and more interested in orthopedics, and that's where I wound up. Where did you uh, land in medical school? I landed at what then was I graduated as a DO, as an osteopathic surgeon, physician, and uh, did my training at L.A. County Hospital. Uh, Then in 1961, there was a uh, tremendous change in California where you were allowed to select whether you wanted to have an MD or a DO degree, and I was in the group that went to the MDs, as somebody used to say, uh, being a physician was a matter of degree only uh, between the DOs and the MDs then. But uh, finished my uh, orthopedic training uh, at the osteopathic unit at L.A. County. And uh, then in that first year after I got out, it, which was 1961, uh, there was the changeover and my degree changed. And uh, I've practiced orthopedics uh, ever since. Well, you've seen a lot of changes in medicine. One thing I want to ask you real quick, because I've had people ask this question for years, is there any uh, primary distinction between a DO and an MD? That take a, an hour of uh, explanation, but basically, yeah, the DO was trained in the old days, uh, Andrew Taylor Still, who was the uh, founder of osteopathic medicine, felt that there was more that, you know, that goes back into the 1800s and so on. And his feeling was that uh, the body was capable of taking care of most of the problems by itself uh, if it was in good condition. I'm kind of simplifying this explanation. If it was in good shape and that that good shape did not not just involve medicines and so on, but uh, stabilization, and he discussed the lesions of the back and uh, things being out of uh, joint, so to speak, and manipulative therapy. And, of course, the MDs considered it a cult because it was, by description, the teachings of one individual. And it fell into disfavor by the MDs for years and years and years, and not until, as I say, in California in 1960, actually it started in the 50s, but the wave to allow us, but we had the same practicing privileges. We spent four years in med school and a year of internship, and then a residency and so on and so forth. Uh, but uh, I... I uh, will use the word avoid. I don't don't mean avoided in that sense, but I wasn't even draftable because they weren't accepting DOs in medical uh, hospitals for internships and residencies. You had to go to an osteopathic hospital, uh, and they weren't taking them into the service, but they were recognizing them as medical personnel in civilian life so that uh, they couldn't draft us because they wouldn't take us as a physician, and yet we uh, had the uh, deferral. Uh, So I never went into the service, uh, 
and practiced, and uh, my draft board tried to get me for years, uh, and then ultimately I was too old. Um, but uh, our method of practice, what we were taught when I was there, was the same. I compared it with friends of mine who were in med school, and our methods of practice and what we were taught, we were taught anatomy, bacteriology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it was the same curriculum that uh, the medical student had in med school, plus the manipulative therapy, which we learned, and many of us continue to use it. I use it all through my practice, and it served me very, very well in sports medicine, uh, but uh, that was it. I, that's a very brief explanation of it. You've seen a lot of changes over the years, and one of the things that jumps out to me is that uh, the modern-day orthopod has a lot of arrows in his quiver, so to speak, a lot of things in the toolbox. Uh, what was it like practicing as an orthopedic surgeon in the 60s? When I came out, I was a general orthopedist, and most people were general orthopedists. Uh, there was some uh, additional fellowships, etc. at that time, but they weren't as varied. For example, my sports medicine, uh, I learned my sports medicine by shadowing uh, the team physician of my high school football team for a couple of years before I came out. And then he was ready to retire and he gave me that school and I became the team physician the first year. Actually, uh, I cheated. I did it in my senior year of med school, of, uh, of residency because I get coverage by my partner, uh, every Friday that I had to be at school. And for about three hours, he would cover me, and I'd come to and uh, cover the game, and then I'd go back when I was on duty. Uh, but uh, it was a matter of just practicing uh, and learning from somebody, shadowing, as we say, somebody. Uh, and that's the way you did your fellowship. And it was the way, basically, that uh, to a great degree, that many, many years ago, uh, physicians got trained. They followed the old family physician around for a couple of years. That was where I was, and uh, no fellowships, sports medicine fellowships were available, etc., or very few, I should say. Uh, and I learned on the field. I learned with him for about two to three years and then took over myself and went from there. It really was a case of see one, uh, do one, teach one back then, wasn't it? Well, that's about, yeah, that was the old expression, see one, do one, teach one. Uh, and uh, that's kind of like how it was. Uh, but I learned a tremendous amount from him. Clinical to this day, I uh, when I teach somebody, I try and tell them that clinical uh, acumen uh, is as important in many, many instances as all the lab work and stuff that you can look at. And uh, a lot of uh, the stuff that is being used now is being overused. By that, I mean it, it's being used too soon by uh, by people uh, before it's even indicated. I think a lot of, well, uh, I don't, you don't want me to get into a philosophy, but I think a lot of uh, money is uh, spent too soon when if you can talk to a patient and touch a patient, uh, which is almost uh, unknown now is to actually touch a patient when you examine them, but you just look at the lab work. Uh, I'm being cynical. Uh, but uh, 
touch a patient, uh, examine them, check their knee with your hands, listen to what they have to say. Uh, there's a lot to that. And uh, good history and a uh, good physical exam uh, will still stand you in good stead. On the technological side, what do you think has been some of the more profound developments over your career? I think back uh, to my mother, who was just old enough, about nine or ten, when the Wright brothers uh, flew. And I always uh, talk about this as the greatest thing in the world, when the Wright brothers uh, flew it. for the first time, and then she heard about it about a week later because it took that long for the news to get to Colorado. And I, then here this woman in her 90s sat and watched a man land on the moon. And I always said that was the greatest development that I'd ever could ever think of in the world. Well, now, when I just think of from the mid-80s to 90s, uh, what has happened in medicine, uh, the technical stuff, the arthroscope, the MRI, the CT, and on and on and on and on, and all the things that have been developed in the robot. Uh, And then I look at the electronic age that we have, uh, all of that, uh, that kind of dwarfs what I used to admire about what my mother had done. So it's kind of hard to answer that specifically. I certainly think that uh, total joint replacement has taking great steps, knee uh, and hip uh, surgery, uh, but uh, ligamentous reconstruction uh, with the onset of the arthroscope and progressive instruments, uh, to me, because that was my field, uh, certainly is just unbelievable, really. Uh, That's probably, uh, from a lay standpoint, that's as good a way to say it as anything. I worked with a surgeon once who uh, used to love telling me the stories about the infancy of arthroscopy and actually putting his eye on the scope. There was no TV monitor. You were basically looking right into the joint. Tell me about that. I'm sure you have some experience with that. Well, yeah, I started with that. That's the way I learned. And the way I learned to do arthroscopy was with a, a physician out here who was just doing his uh, work and uh, had started it, had read about it. Uh, they, they were doing arthroscopy or trying to do stuff like that back, I think, in the 30s, uh, late 30s or 40s, but they didn't have the proper lighting and uh, the joint would get too hot, as I understand it. And uh, then with the fiber optic light, uh, that made the big change and the scope came out. But our first scopes, we didn't have any instruments all we had was a scalpel to make a puncture hole, and we stuck a scope in that was sterilized, and we had to wrap the eyepiece with a uh, sterile wrap, and then we just looked in, and all we saw was the little circle uh, of what was in the joint. And initially, we about all we had was a made-up probe to probe around a little bit, so Early diagnostic, I mean, early arthroscopy was diagnostic, uh, and that's all we did. We'd look in and confirm uh, that uh, uh, there was a tear in the cartilage, if we could see it, and so on and, and so on. And then we'd go proceed right from there at the time because the patient was asleep, and we would uh, just 
proceed and go ahead with the open surgery and take the cartilage out. That was it. And then, of course, a few instruments, uh, the the probe uh, and uh, the scissors and a different type of knife and a cannula and all of that. But uh, I finally got to the point I was teaching at SC and helping the residents in surgery. And, and ultimately, uh, I got to the point a few years ago when I had stopped, when I'd retired from surgery, and uh, I could still teach them the fine points, uh, techniques, etc. But uh, I got to the point where these kids had seen more use of the new instruments than I had. And I felt that there was nothing more I could teach them. And that's when I kind of retired from teaching because I wasn't doing it. I wasn't using the instruments. The instruments are coming out new almost every week. And I didn't even have the experience with it. I still had the initial experience of arthroscopy. When I first started, I had a surgeon show me the blades that they used for a total meniscectomy. I'm sure you remember that procedure. What, the smileys? Yes. Uh, well, sure, I've still got a set somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure where they are, but I've still got a set. I've still got my original camera uh, that we used with the arthroscopy. What we had was uh, just a small Kodak with film, believe it or not, and we had some frames that hooked on to the camera that were sterilized. The camera wasn't sterilized. Uh, and we would use these sterile frames that hooked onto the loop uh, of the scope and we'd get a view of something and we would then, uh, we didn't have the cameras to, and the screens and so on. And so we'd hook the camera up and have the nurse take the picture. Oh, wow. uh, and and that's the way we got whatever records we got uh, before the days of the screen and, and television and so on. So I've been through the whole, I think, pretty much uh, the whole uh, process of the scope from the first time we started to use it or around that period of time, uh, wide scale, uh, to now. If I've heard this phrase once, I've heard it a thousand times in the operating room, the enemy of good is better. And, and I'm just curious, as you look over your career and what's happened uh, in the medicine over that time, is there anything, a couple things that you think that uh, weren't really an improvement? Well, I don't know. Uh, it's hard to say. Things change in medicine, like uh, even today in the pandemic, we see we hear something one day and everybody gets all excited and two days later somebody's accused of having told some crazy story because we find out it's not true. It's not that it's not true. Things change and it takes time to prove things. And uh, I remember when I was in training, was in the era of uh, O'Donohue in Oklahoma who was talking about the unholy triad uh, and he talked about the injury to the medial collateral ligament of the knee along with the meniscus. And the whole concept uh, was the medial collateral ligament was important. And it was even important initially to the teaching was to take out the meniscus even if it wasn't injured so you could tighten up the medial collateral ligament. 
And the ACL was really kind of just in the initial studies. It was uh, number three on the uh, chain, so to speak. Uh, right. And uh, the attitude was to operate uh, the knees immediately uh, and uh, so on. And now, and one thing about the medial collateral ligament was if just the medial collateral ligament was torn, uh, go ahead and repair it. Even if there are no other injuries, you did a surgical repair. And that's the way I came out. And of course, uh, my high school kids, I learned late in later years, I was called the butcher because I had come out and everybody had been under the impression that you uh, immobilized a ligament, a medial collateral ligament, and saw how it turned out and then worried about what to do if it didn't tighten up uh, later on. But uh, no surgical intervention initially. And I would, came out of my training and I was ready to operate knees and felt the medial collateral should be repaired. That's the way it was taught and that was the experience I had. Well, that was 1960-61, as I say. We were doing all medial collateral ligaments, and the scope came up. We were doing ACL repairs, et cetera, et cetera. Now, we've swung full circle to the point that if you have an isolated MCL, you don't operate it. Most of the feeling is that you don't operate it. You immobilize it, which is what we did back in the 50s and 60s. You immobilize it and see what happens, and you can and do a reconstruction if it's necessary later but that it's okay if the knee's a little lax on the medial side because we've got the braces that we didn't have in those days and many, many other reasons. I Again, cutting this short. Uh, so that's come full circle over a period of, what, uh, 60 years? And now we're back to where we were, so to speak. And that's what happens in medicine. So to say uh, whether this thing works or that thing works uh, is hard to tell. Because it may work great for a year, it may work great for 10 years, and then all of a sudden, uh, 15 to 20 years later, the thing is, uh, we find, gee, that's causing arthritic changes, that's causing something else. Do you, do you think industry uh, drives some of that, always looking to create a, a metal-slash-plastic-slash-suture solution for everything, and, and that it can kind of drive the ship towards a, a surgical fix? I don't think so. I think that, uh, you know, evidence-based medicine, as it's called today, uh, you're, you're looking for an answer. And uh, in one instance, it may be uh, a suture, as you said. It may be a, a screw. It may be an implant. It may be this. It may be that. And in another case, it's leave them alone. Rehabilitate them. Do physical therapy. Uh, some studies uh, on the shoulder show that uh, adhesive fibrosis or uh, capsular tightening uh, changes. You're better off rather than operating them or doing anything to them is rehabilitating them in physical therapy, and they do better. But you've got to take the time to study this. And that's, as I say, what we're, you know, it's just like the new vaccines for covid uh, great, we're immune today. That much they've proven, so to speak. But what's it going to be in six months? We don't know. 
Now, we know a little bit more about the flu vaccines because that's they've been around for 100 years. So to, not not for 100 years, but uh, the vaccines and the, the flu has been around for 100 years. We have a history of the flu. We've got a year's history of COVID. And it's the same thing in all parts of medicine, as far as I'm concerned. What's been your favorite procedure to do over the years? Oh, I, I always enjoyed the uh, uh, hip and knee procedures. Uh, the knee reconstruction was really my most favorite. And uh, it's interesting enough because I did about a, uh, in my late years, I did a lot of assisting in total joints in total hips with uh, an excellent surgeon out here. And I always enjoyed the uh, reconstructive procedures in the hip and, and my own arthroscopy and knee surgeries. Do you remember the first knee you ever did? I don't specifically remember the first knee I ever did, but I remember a knee that I did do in high, uh, on a high school kid uh, in the middle of the night that uh, I was on the sideline when he went up for a pass, came down, landed, planted his one foot on the ground as he caught the ball and came down, and somebody hit him laterally, and he was right in front of me about 15 yards from me, and I think I probably was in front of him on the, before he hit the ground because I saw the whole thing happen right in front of me, which is incidentally why you want to watch everything that goes on. And I got out there, and surgically, he had uh, torn his medial collateral, uh, his cruciate, and a meniscus, and posterior cruciate. So he had the medial collateral, the uh, anterior and posterior cruciate ligaments, and the meniscus. And what the hell did I know? I was a I was a rookie, so to speak, on my own. I repaired him, put him in a cast for about six weeks with his knee flexed, foot internally rotated, left him there that way. Partway through, I had a technique where I split the thigh of the cast and tightened it up. I didn't even bother changing the cast. This guy came out and uh, wound up playing college baseball seven months later. No, not even not even seven months. I'm sorry, five months later. Oh my gosh! Uh, with a scholarship, etc. And I have seen him. He became an attorney, and I've seen him since. And he's never had a problem with his knee. And that one I remember like crazy. Wow. Uh, my best friend now uh, was the assistant coach at the time, and was on the field at the same time with me. And we still talk about it, and we still manage to get in touch with him. And he. He's, what, 70 now, I think, uh, something like that. And uh, he's got some aches and pains. He's got some arthritis, et cetera. But it's probably the best surgical result I ever had in my life. So you were right there at the dawning of the reconstruction age uh, with our first attempts at total knee and total hip replacement. What was that like? Well, uh, I wasn't even... Uh, I didn't even get to do any total joints when I was in residency because... Uh, they weren't uh, de rigueur uh, at that time, uh, and it wasn't until I got into practice, because when I went out into practice, I uh, went into practice with the head of my department at county, 
and he was starting to do total joints. So I learned the total joints when I was out in practice, uh, and we were doing it. We were using a Charnley, uh, which stood in good stead for years and years and years and years, uh, and uh, just watched the progression through that. I never did a tremendous amount of joint surgery until I started doing it with Dr. Huddleston, and uh, I really did uh, almost a, a four- to five-year fellowship in joint replacement because I didn't do the primary surgery. I did the assisting uh, with Dr. Dennis Huddleston here, and he was an excellent surgeon, recently passed away, uh, and uh, I helped him uh, in the later stages of my career in office, and uh, that was when I really got into the joint the hip uh, and knee work from the standpoint of joint replacement. You were connected somehow with Dr. Curlin, is that right? I knew Dr. Curlin, and we both came out about the same time. He went with the Dodgers and so on with Sandy Koufax, etc. cetera. Uh, and I went to the high school level, basically stayed at the high school level from the standpoint of care of athletes. I felt that the, the kids were the ones who were really getting shortchanged. The medical care and follow-up on high school kids here in L.A. Uh, was not that great. We just had here uh, family docs, neighborhood doctors who would go out and take care of the high schools on Friday afternoons. There were a few lights uh, at that time, and uh, they'd go out on Friday afternoons. But then in the uh, late 70s and, and 80s, uh, with malpractice problems arising and insurance problems arising, the docs decided that they didn't want to uh, really expose themselves, etc. And that was when I started my training program for LA Unified, uh, training residents, uh, EMTs, nurses to go out on the field. The whole concept of medical care for the high schools was a little different than it was for uh, the pros, etc. And my feeling was that these kids were getting shortchanged, and that's why I went into the high school area. In the early to mid-80s, what with malpractice going on and, and the docs wandering away and not having anybody to cover what I did, I started a training program, and that's where I got involved with LA Unified more, I started a training program, and I trained EMTs who were great doing CPR, uh, but didn't know much about a football field, and we trained them, we trained residents, and uh, so on, so that they could go out, we had a training session, and, and then the follow-up, and so that they could go out and handle injuries on the field, the initial part, and the evaluation, and now uh, this Finally, here in L.A., it's getting to be a little bit better. We've got some L.A. Unified trainers who are teaching the program that I'm not teaching anymore and uh, trying to get people to cover the games. And that's one of the other things that I felt that I kind of contributed well, to. You have to be proud of that. I never really considered the, the legal ramifications when you walk out on that field to treat an injury as an orthopedic surgeon that it does make you vulnerable, doesn't it? It does. Uh, the one thing is there, there's the Good Samaritan rule, but there is a, a kicker in the Good Samaritan rule. Uh, we've trained these people and they, they have okayed them uh, and the district, which is self-insured, has covered them uh, 
because they've gone through this minimal training program. But along with that, the Good Samaritan rule says that, you know, even I can go out and treat an emergency immediately and not be held responsible medical legally. I'm simplifying this medical legally because I did what I had to do immediately. But transfer that to the football field. I go out on the field, the kid's lying there, I evaluate the kid, I get him up, I take him off the field and get him onto the bench. That's been good Samaritan law. Okay, no matter how I got him there, etc. We did what had to be done on an emergency basis. If he couldn't be moved initially and we had to call nine one one, we didn't move him. But once I get him off the field and then recheck him and say, okay, you can go back. Now, if I've missed something, telling him he can go back would be questioned as to whether that's good Sam or that's a second decision. Hmm. That's interesting. Do you follow what I just said? I do. Okay. So I may not have been guilty of anything or been liable for anything going out, checking the kid, and getting him off the field. But when I tell him that he can go back onto the field, and he gets hit in the head again if he's been stunned the first time and he gets hit in the head again and he suddenly keels over and dies from second impact, why did I tell him to go back on the field? So there's some ramifications of that, and I fortunately avoided those problems over all the years. There's some danger there or or trepidation, and uh, uh, our laws, our rules, CIF, California Interscholastic Federation, says that a contact sport football cannot begin without medical personnel on the field. And that was a reason that I started my training program and all of that was because I saw that the doctors were fading out and we were going to have to, if we wanted to play football, we were going to have to do something better. You and I connected on my quest to learn more about Dr. Herman Epstein. Yeah. I'd love to just hear what you know about him and his legacy there at USC? Herm Epstein goes back uh, to when I basically actually was in high school. I mean, he was that far ahead of me, uh, but he was one of the medical, quote, legends, end quote, of the LA Unified School District. There were a lot of doctors, as I alluded to before, that were uh, uh, would go out on a Friday afternoon. But Herm Epstein was involved with a coach at L.A. High School that had a tremendous uh, record in those days, Harry Edelstein. And Herm Epstein was this big, jolly uh, giant. Uh, And he and the doctor that trained me, Robert Loveland, Bob Loveland, when he retired, when I took over one of the schools for him and he ultimately retired, he became, as I recall, the consultant to the California Interscholastic Federation, medical uh, consultant for that. But uh, Herm Epstein was just this wonderful man, very well-read, very, very competent, but very lovable. I actually ran into him years later when I was in practice and I was helping train uh, residents from UCLA uh, out at uh, the Veterans Hospital in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles. And uh, he, he started coming to those meetings, and I really got to know him very well then. Prior to that time, he was just a legend to me. 
but he was just, as I say, a, a wonderful, very bright orthopedist, very well read, very, very helpful to all of the residents. I had forgotten until I was reminded, I think, by you, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, about Herm Epstein every year played Santa Claus for the uh, children's hospitals here. And uh, he was just that kind of a person, just donated his time and good orthopedist and well, just a, a lovely man along with everything else. And I had the opportunity to know uh, two coaches who were in his family, Jack and Alan or Chick Epstein. Uh, they were part of his family, and uh, I worked with them a little bit on the field. So got to know him that way, too. Interesting tidbit on that Santa story. I was reading an article about it and said that one thing that he learned in his years as Santa was never to change out of the suit when the children were around, and that after one particular appearance, he started taking off the beard and the jacket on the way to the car, and some kids saw it and started screaming and crying. He's not Santa Claus. There's no Santa Claus. And he said his wife almost killed him for that. So hey, he looked. I never heard that one. That's a good one. Yeah, I'd never heard that one. But it evidently got pretty big. I want to say that at one point they were they were serving about 600 children and their families every year. So it's it was a pretty big deal. Yeah, he was. Uh, that was in the days when. Uh, really, he he did a tremendous job, and he was loved by everybody at L.A. High School, uh, all of his athletes. He was a great doc at that time and uh, took care of his kids very, very well. You know, that was a great story you told about the, the gentleman that uh, got his knee dusted in that high school game, and now he's he's gone on to to do very well. Is there any other patients, uh, as you look back on your history, that were just really interesting cases or ones that stood out uh, from all the rest? Well, uh, I took care of uh, quite a few, uh, as I say, world-class athletes uh, uh, in track and field uh, around, basically all around the world in my travels uh, as team physician and also saw a lot of them in the office. Not sure that uh, things that, but I, I can throw some names out. Uh, but uh, we talk about Paul Walters, Pinnell, John Pinnell, Bob Segrin, uh, and uh, hurdlers, Tommy Lee White. A uh, lot of uh, Ralph Boston uh, and uh, a lot of guys in those days track and field part of my life was very, very interesting uh, and very, very fulfilling. Many years of wandering all over, as I say, helping these kids. When you look back on your career, was there any mentors that stand out that really helped direct you through this, this medical journey? Yeah, I think of Bob Loveland, uh, who was basically just a general practitioner, uh, but had gotten into sports and really in love sports, took care of uh, several high schools in L.A., Hollywood High School and Fairfax High School. Fairfax is where I went to school. That's where I first met Dr. Loveland, and he was the one that really got me started in what you would call sports medicine. Uh, and from there on, uh, we talk about uh, the head of our department at County, Walt Gerard. He was a big, gruff guy who actually went, I think, about three to four months one time without even talking to me as a resident 
because I had he <laughs> <laughs> it, it asked me why this gentleman had passed away and I said the guy was 90 years old I said you know and he didn't talk to me for about three months and then one night at an anatomy class he looked at me and using a not too nice word to me <laughs> you dumb so and so and he said I want you to remember one thing to the day you die and he says that's it people don't die of old age and I never forgot that one. I never forgot that <laughs> one. He, <laughs> that, uh, but uh, he was uh, he was the kind of man who uh, he'd come to our anatomy session and he'd stop by the bookstore and he'd gotten a book, book that was about two inches thick, you know, a, a medical book, a text. He'd be thumbing through it and he'd say, you know, this looks like it's a pretty good book. You guys ought to get one and read it. And he'd come back one week later. Now he had a private practice. He was teaching two days a week at county hospital. So, and he would look at us and say, get the book. It was good. Which meant he'd read that in that week. And he had a photographic memory. He'd look at something on an x-ray and he would say, oh yeah, if you look at Journal of Bone and Joint, volume three, page such and such, you'll find an article on that. Never met anybody like that in my life. And you'd go, you go to the library, and he was right on. So that was Walt Gerard. Never forget him. Best thing that happened to you is you get a kind of a backward compliment from him, like "good job." <laughs> that that, right. that kept you alive for about a year, you know that guy. So there was he and. Then got the guy I trained with, I mean, that trained me, uh, and I went into practice with Art Miller. There's a lot of people going back then. They were all DOs and, and uh, uh, not writing any, anything because nothing was being accepted by the DOs. So, but they sure had a lot of clinical experience and could give you a lot of information. I've run into so many surgeons over the years that have sayings, uh, things that are near and dear to them that they quote all the time in their career. And I was just wondering if you had any in particular. What I have always tried to teach my residents and my uh, even my EMTs on the football field and all is talk to the patient, get a history, know what you're asking, listen to them, and then touch them, examine them. To this day, I will tell residents and all, don't be so anxious to look at the lab reports. Talk to the patient and examine them. One of the things that was taught to me was a good history and physical. will do it, and I will tell you that a good history and a physical will do it. In this day and age, you've got electronic medical records, EMRs, and uh, you can almost spot an EMR just by looking at it, if you know what you're, uh, I mean, it, it's black, white, uh, and uh, it, you haven't asked the patient any questions other than what's on there. And if they check a no, that's when you look at something and ask them about it. Instead of saying, well, when do you have your pain? What happens when you get up and move? My wife laughs at me because I rant and rave every day. Just the phone call uh, the robot at night. You call the doctor's office after five o'clock, and uh, if this is an emergency, please go to your nearest emergency room and so on, or call us tomorrow morning. To me, I hate to say that that's a terrible thing to say for a doctor, but 
couldn't practice medicine that way. Uh, I started when I had to call in, no matter if I went from one house to another, I had to call in and check with my exchange. And then we got the beepers on our belt. And the beepers didn't do anything more than beep, and that made us call our exchange. And then ultimately the phones. If I had to go from one hospital to another, when I left one hospital, I had to call the exchange, tell them I was on my way. And when I got to the next hospital, whether it was 10 minutes away or an hour and a half away, I had to call again and see if there are any calls in between. Times have changed. I was cleaning out my garage the other day, and I found my old pager. I had some fond memories, not so fond, of whenever that thing would go off, having to find a payphone to find out what that 911 page was all about. Uh, boy, cell phones really helped out, didn't they? Yeah, there's no question that the cell phones have helped. The cell phones have uh, been a marvelous <laughs> yes. free pass, so to speak. And I always jump up and down <laughs> and <laughs> uh, get upset because my kids text me. And I keep saying, just call me, talk to me. I can, we can settle whatever we have to talk about in two minutes rather than text back and forth. Have you enjoyed working in uh, Southern California for most of your life? Yes, I have. Uh, I, I enjoy Southern California. I Obviously, I enjoy Southern California, period, uh, with our climate and everything else. Uh, originally, uh, when I first got out, I was tempted to go up to Mammoth and practice there. Uh, there was one family practitioner up there. Town had about 4,500 people in it back in the 60s. And uh, I almost moved up there, but there were no hospitals within about 50 miles. And I don't think I had the guts to do it on my own, you know, just go up there and start practice. So I didn't. I think to this day, I kind of regret it. It would have been a good life, different life than what you have down in the big city for sure with uh, one movie house that played a movie five days and then changed. The whole life is different, the whole lifestyle. Uh, my kids go out, they uh, hike every weekend, they ride their motorbikes, they uh, ski uh, when they're off duty, when they're not working, and they have a marvelous time and a good life. They go into Yosemite and hike trails and climb mountains, things that we looked at like an opportunity and a glorious opportunity, they just do without thinking about it because they can. What was it like to, to finally hang it up? Was it hard? Was it the uh, second best day of your life? No, I don't think it was the best day of my life. It, it, it wasn't really hard because several reasons. Number one, I continued on with the high school uh, medical stuff, my training program for the residents and the EMTs that I started here in, in the mid-80s. I continued on with that So because I quit. Actually, I, I closed my office uh, back in, uh, geez, it's been almost 18 years, I think, something like that. Uh, and uh, But I continued all that time doing uh, the high school athletics and sports uh, all season long each season and uh i'm also i happen to be a ham actor who wanted always wanted to do some acting so i started doing some student films and uh have done a, some commercials and stuff like that 
thank God I never had to put food on the table with it. <laughs> it's that's a miserable that's a miserable business. So I've I've had things to do. I've kept busy. I I was not somebody who retired and just sat down and started reading the paper, you know, fourteen hours a day and then going to sleep. Uh, so I've been busy. I feel like I've wasted a lot of the past 15 years or so because I did turn off to some degree, but had things to keep me busy. You know, I remember when I was in my office, my secretary made out a work schedule for the week. I got out on Monday morning, and if I had scheduled to have my car fixed, I would call the guy and I'd say, hey, I got a 7.30 surgery. I'll be done about 9, 9.30, uh, and I've got about a 35-minute turnover time. I'll bring the car over. Please have somebody ready to come back with me uh, and deliver me back to the hospital or wherever, and uh, you can have the car and so on and so forth. And I'd schedule things that way. Uh, after I retired, it was a matter of saying, Gee, I got to get the car lubed and tires aligned and so on. Um, I'll do it tomorrow. And I'd look up three, four, five weeks later, and I still hadn't done it. <laughs> you know, you, you just turn off, and then you slowly get back into activity. I, I've seen too many guys who didn't have anything else to do. Uh, you know, I continued to play tennis and, and be active, but a lot of guys don't have any other plans. And those are the ones that get into trouble when they retire. Hmm. You have to have a game plan to go ahead and be active because your medical life was very active and very scheduled and time-constrained, etc. Game plan. If you were to hand a game plan to these younger surgeons, I love what you talked about, uh, listening to the patient, touching the patient. Is there any other advice that you would give if you were saying, okay, if I had to do it over again, there were some things I would do different or... Uh, what I've learned over my my career, any anything that you would put in their lap that you think would help them out? I always say if I had it to do all over again, I wouldn't have the strength. Uh, <laughs> that's, but, a, that's a great line. <laughs> as I see medicine today, and I see the docs come into a room with an iPad or whatever, uh, a laptop, my experience, this business of coming in, sitting down, spending 90% of the time looking at the laptop to get numbers, et cetera, et cetera, then checking the patient very quickly, uh, not much time, not much eye-to-eye -eye contact, et cetera. That's not medicine for me. Having the PA do all the work uh, is not medicine for me, but times have changed, and I'm aware of that. I still say I start basically with my, and I talked about Walt Gerard earlier. Gerard always used to say, talk to the patient. One thing he always said was, if you are smart enough to ask the patient the right questions based upon the last answer they gave you, when you're done with your history, you will probably have your diagnosis without lab work or anything else at least 70 to 75% of the time without even examining the patient. And you have to think about what that means. And what that means is if you know enough to ask the right questions, how do you feel when you're sitting? How do you feel when you first start to get up? And now I'm talking orthopedically. How do you feel after you've been walking 
for three minutes, four minutes, five minutes, and you get warmed up. What happens if you've been walking a mile and so on? But all of these things relate and lead you. And I always tell my residents, I say, it's like eating in a Chinese restaurant. If you don't like what's in column B, go to column A. I mean, if you don't like what's in column A, go to column B, or back and forth. Because when I ask you a question and you give me an answer, that can send me in two, three, four, five different directions if I know why I'm asking the question. So it's not just enough to say, oh, you got pain in your knee. It's one of the hardest things I had training my EMTs on the field. I'd get a phone call from them on a Friday night. I'd be on one field somewhere else. And I and they'd call me and I'd say, what's the problem? Well, I've got this kid with a pain in his knee. And my question would be, where is the pain? Well, it's in his knee. <laughs> no, it's in the front of the knee. It's in the medial side. It's in the lateral side. It's posterior, etc. He feels a popping. Where is he aware of the popping? Well, either he doesn't know and he can't localize it, or he can tell you it's on the medial side or the lateral side. But as you ask the questions you can start working down into a differential diagnosis. People don't ask the questions anymore. They don't take a good history. Do you think that uh, EMR drives uh, kind of a checklist manifesto? That's why I hate EMRs. Yeah, that's why I hate EMRs. I, uh, I can pretty much, I think, and maybe I'm breaking my arm, patting myself on the back, but I think that I can look at a report and I know whether the doctor talked to the patient or whether it was just an EMR. And so many of them are standard EMR written reports now. It's just different. You think you're saving time, but you're really not giving anybody information. I mean, there's a lot of difference between I have pain in my knee or do you notice any clicking or snapping? Uh, Yeah, I'm aware of clicking. Is it painful? No, it's not painful. Or yes, it's painful. One tells you one thing and one tells you another or at least directs you, points you into another direction. A lot of people don't do that, and I tried to train my residents. I tried to train my EMTs. I told my EMTs, you don't have to know anything beyond what's on the field, but at least you have to tell me something more than the guy's got pain in his knee if you're talking to me on the phone and you want me to help you. That's almost like saying the guy's complaining of pain in his leg. Well, which leg? Where in the leg? What does the pain what what is the pain brought on by? What eases the pain? All of those things give you some history, but you've got to ask the questions and you've got to listen to the patient. That's almost like the horse and buggy instead of the Tesla. That's the only way I can explain it, Kevin. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm just an old, I'm an old man. I'm a dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's all there is to it. But uh, it, it held me in good stead, and uh, that's it. Uh, that's good advice for people in my side of the job, the medical device reps, is to. Oh, I, I it, it, you know, it's basically. I think, in my way, it's fairly good advice, no matter where you are. If you have a problem and you want to follow, solve your problem, you have to get some information about what's causing the problem why it's repetitive before you can try and solve it. You know, it's like the old joke, you know, doctor, I have a problem. What's your problem? 
it hurts me when I raise my right arm. Stop raising your right arm. <laughs> right. I remember that. Yeah, you know, it's the old joke. But you got to, if, if the guy says, I've got pain in my arm, and you don't bother to ask him what causes his pain when he says, I raise my right arm, if I raise my arm, and you don't ask, when does the pain occur? Just, I have pain in my shoulder. That tells you nothing. You got to ask some questions. And unfortunately, you find that many physicians nowadays are too much engrossed in lab tests. And, uh, you know, it's just like we see all the time uh, as an orthopedist. And, and I've seen that for years. It's basically because what people read in the sports section as well as everything else. But uh patient comes in on a consult. Family physician sent them to you on a consult because they have a knee problem. Well, what happened? They went into their family doctor and they said, I've got pain in my knee. Well, you have to see the orthopedist. Let's get an MRI. There's no need to get the MRI. Find out what's wrong with the patient first. Well, some of that old school stuff, though, it's just like what you said. And I think this kind of brings our conversation full circle. You know, we started out casting uh, these media collateral injuries and then we started fixing them. And then now we're back because uh, it worked. Mm-hmm. It worked. And, and I think that Sometimes getting back to that comment, uh, the enemy of good is better. And, and sometimes the old way, so to speak, the dinosaur way was actually the, the best way to do it all along. Absolutely. Absolutely. Certainly not the total meniscectomy, but uh, a lot of other things for sure. Well, I can't think of a better way to tie us up than that right there, Dr. Bornstein. I'm so thankful just to let us take a trip down memory lane with you today. Well, I, I enjoyed it. It made me think back to a lot of things. So thankful for Dr. Bornstein coming on the show to share his 89 years of life experience with us. And what a perfect way to close out this year with his comment there right at the end. You made me think back on a lot of things. And, you know, isn't that what New Year's is all about, is looking back on a lot of things throughout the year? And then what can we do different in 2021? Absolutely horrifying moment the other day as we were packing up Christmas ornaments and I knocked the entire container off of the sofa. I heard some glass break, and I'm thinking, please let it not be baby's first Christmas. It would just be that ornament, right? Fortunately, I dodged a bullet. It was not that particular ornament, but I thought to myself, you know, that's exactly the metaphor that we should embrace going into this new year of looking at our ornaments, looking at what's broken, throwing that away, packing up what worked, and then going into the new year. So COVID really kicked us all in the rear end this year. There's just no way around it. It changed everything, and a lot of people got hurt as a result of it. And I know some of you are listening to this show. What worked this year for you getting through that, if anything, and what needs to be thrown away? What are some of the old ways of doing things that need to be discarded as we go into this new year? So let's take that word new for just a minute. It wouldn't be sales without a mnemonic, right? So new, N-E-W. Let's take these three letters and dissect it apart with some things that might help us all as we go into 2021. The letter N. Well, I hate to be Captain Obvious here, and I get no points for creativity here, but N has got to stand for new. You know, the old ways of doing things 
just don't play anymore. I love what Dr. Bornstein said about things coming full circle, and sometimes the old ways is still the best way. I get that. But, you know, in terms of your interaction with your customer, the old ways quite simply don't exist anymore. So many of the meetings that we all relied on in the past to connect with our customers, do some whining and dining, show some shiny new metal and plastic things, well, they don't exist anymore. The ways that many of us used to promote and connect with our customers on social media, well, you know what? For a lot of us, policies and procedures are in place that basically make that a no-go now. So that's out of the window as well. So what do we do with that? Well, you know what? It's time to start shopping for new ornaments. You've packed away the ones that work. You've thrown away the ones that are broken. It's now time to start looking at the ornaments that are going to get you through this year and help you connect with your customers in a new and fresh way. So you're saying to yourself, okay, Kevin, I appreciate the metaphor, but what does that mean for me practically? I love what Dr. Andrew Wickline said on LinkedIn recently about spending a half a day each week in strictly planning and strategic mode. Because you know what? I don't have an answer for you specifically because each territory, each company, each scenario has its own unique answer. But we have to be intentional setting aside time now every week looking at this new paradigm and what can we be doing differently to engage our customers in the midst of it. Socrates famously said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Indeed, if we are going to thrive as device reps in 2021, it's going to demand examining what we're doing. And that's going to require not only setting aside time for us personally to do it, but also engaging assets around us to help us through that. Before we get to the E, I will leave you with two quick thoughts on how we can promote our surgeons and engage them in this new landscape. Two things that pop into my mind are the Journal of Orthopedic Experience and Innovation and Doc Plus Social. I will put links to both of these platforms in the show notes. And what does this allow you to do? Well, in a social media policy-friendly format, You can connect your surgeon with the outside world and promote what they're doing. What are they doing that's exciting to them, that's an innovation, that's an experience, or maybe a course that they could teach? And you, Device Rep, can help at least facilitate putting that together and keep everybody at corporate happy with you. So just a thought. Let's go to E. This is going to be easy and quick. Execute. It sounds easy, but you know what? It's not. It's so easy to to plan and to come up with these grand ways of doing things. And I think I'm going to do this. This is going to be a new thing I'm going to do. But then you never really do it. You get caught up in the cases that you have this week. and, And again, before you know it, you've gotten right back into that routine of what you were doing in 2020. And that's not going to get you there in 2021. So not only have a time set aside to look at new ways of doing it, but then have the discipline to follow through and execute. And then we come to probably the most difficult aspect of the whole thing, and that's our W. My youngest daughter said, Dad, there's a reminder on your phone that says, wait well. What does that even mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means. It's our W, and it's actually the hardest part for me, waiting well. You know, we come up with these plans, we execute them, 
And then the waiting part of it is the challenge because I've said it a million times. This is a long-range game medical device. It's not microwave. And so much of what we do, the seeds that we plant as farmers, take a long time to come up. So how do we wait in the meantime? Do we wait anticipating things are going to go wrong and this is going to be a terrible year? Do we wait with positive anticipation that, hey, I think something good is going to happen right around the corner? This is where a lot of us struggle because in the absence of information, and that big information in this scenario is the future, we often fill it with the negative. So let's all be encouraged. I firmly believe that the people that listen to this show are extremely creative and driven. And you're going to do this. You're going to come up with new ways of engagement. And this could actually be the best year you've had in a long time. And water is on the way. Out of chaos, many times comes opportunity. So let's look at 2021, and I'm right there with you on this, positively looking at new ways of engaging our customers and helping to promote what they're doing, executing these plans, and then waiting well, positively, with hopeful anticipation. Write this down, put it on a cross stitch in your kitchen right next to home is where the heart is. Emotions are contagious, emotions are contagious. You know, if you think 2020 was terrible and 2021 is going to be worse, there is no way that you're going to reach your personal summit with that because no one wants to be in a foxhole with someone who thinks it's game over, right? I want to be in there in the battle with someone who thinks we're going to get through this and have success waiting for us on the other side. This isn't hyperbole. I really believe in my heart of hearts, many of you listening are going to tap into just that. It's my honor to go into this new year with you. And we have an incredible, and that's in all caps if you weren't paying attention, an incredible lineup of guests going into this year and some new ways of helping you get there to that place on the other side where you're successful that are so exciting. I can't wait to unwrap these presents with you. Why should Christmas just be one day? So happy New Year's, y'all. Let's do this thing. Let's do it proactively, professionally, and positively.